Creative Brain Candy by Creators for Creators. You're listening to Simply Stogies, a podcast dedicated to the cigar enthusiast. Light up a stogie, sit back, relax, while James brings you along on his cigar journey. Simply Stogies will review cigars, discuss topics that cigar aficionados find important, sit down with guests from across the industry, and we'll probably learn a few things along the way. Now, here's your host of Simply Stogies, James. Welcome to Simply Stogies. I am your host, James. This is the first episode of a series that uh, I'm going to be doing with the incomparable, the one, the only, uh, and noted Cuban expert, uh, Nick Sears from LH Cigars. Nick, welcome back. Thank you, James. Always glad to be here. And uh, I don't mind talking about cigars in Cuba. Anytime there's a mic in front of me, I'm ready to go. So you're going to serve as my my co-host for this series this year. We're going to put these out. I think maybe once a month, uh, and sometimes they may serve as one of the podcasts for the month. You guys all know that we put one out on the 1st and the 15th, and sometimes we might just get an extra one thrown in for good measure. But we're going to be covering a lot of stuff uh, for this podcast, aren't we, Nick? We are. It's going to be awesome. Uh, We're going to start from right from the beginning all the way through present day, history, cigars, everything you want to know about Cuba, we're afraid to ask. (laughs) but we're afraid to ask. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to be talking. So this first episode is going to be the history of Cuba. I promise we'll make it as entertaining as possible, but I think, I feel like we need to get a good baseline uh, as as cigar enthusiasts, as cigar aficionados to understand where Cuba was, uh, where it came from and where it's at now. Uh, And then the next episode, like I'll just give you guys the rundown of the episodes. We're going to talk about the people of Cuba, uh, the history of the Cuban cigar uh, the innovators, some of the innovators of Cuban cigars, which I'm sure there were many, uh, modern Cuban cigars and the impact of communism and the U.S. embargo. Uh, we're going to talk about farms and the soil and why Cuban cigars are different than New World cigars. Uh, we'll talk about the factories. We'll talk about the art of the Cuban cigars. Uh, we'll talk about brands, uh, why they're different from one another. We'll also talk about uh, rumors, myths, mysteries surrounding uh, the uh, Cuban cigar. And also, uh, how to begin your Cuban cigar journey. So look forward to that this year, uh, 2022, the year of our Lord, 2022. Uh, we'll be talking uh, Cuban cigars uh, with our friend uh, Nick Sears. This guy, like I want to give you guys just real quickly, if you if you haven't listened to some of the episodes that have Nick on it, um, Nick's a friend of the show. He was, he was a co-host of Smooth Draws uh, podcast back in the day with Cigar Coop. And they, they, he started doing tours in 2016 because there was such demand, but he's been going to Cuba almost monthly since 2008. He knows. Well, 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 let's, I forgot to mention that since the pandemic, haven't been there in almost two years, which seems very strange in and of itself. I mean, but anyway, continue. No, James. honestly, Nick, I don't <laughs> think there's a lot of people that have been anywhere in the last two years. Well, that's true. Uh, yeah. So but it feels weird. It feels weird. Right. You know, I'm not being there. I'm guessing you know? you're missing it. Yeah. In a lot of ways, it became a part of my life. I mean, it was literally 
you know, life-changing in so many ways. The first time I set foot on the island of Cuba, I just had this epiphany of like, oh my God, I need to be here. There was something that drew me to that island. And the first time I set foot, I knew it was just something magical. For me, the whole tobacco cigar is a whole magical experience. And that was literally the, the uh, birthplace of cigars. And it just, it seemed so right for me to be there. And I was glad I went there and being able to share that. It was never my intent. Uh, you know, I'm just a cigar guy, but Cuba is my background, my history, my education. And to be able to share through my eyes what I got to see in Cuba and to be able to have other people experience it and those people being so, it never was intended to be a business. It was never intended to be something that I did, but I realized, you know, it's a very difficult task to undertake in Cuba because things are just, uh, let's just say very different there. Um, so to be able to work with the locals and to provide tours that benefit the Cuban people in so many ways, you know, visiting the local uh, restaurants, you know, all the shops, um, to interact with the Cuban people. It was just something fantastic about it. And my, my clients loved it so much. It made me continue to do it as much as it's, it's a very stressful undertaking to do every month. Um, I did enjoy it because uh, the re the reality is I was pretty good at it and I, and I love doing it and I will get back to it as soon as things allow. Yeah, I can I can imagine like falling in love with the island. I mean, you you'd have to if you're going that often. It's also not only that. I've I've been all over the world. I've been I've had the privilege of just visiting so many different countries, you know, from the Middle East to Africa to Asia, all through Europe, and there's just no place like it on earth. Now, on my bucket list is one day maybe to even visit Antarctica. And I've never been to Australia, which is definitely high on my bucket list because I do have a, a nice following uh, in the LH cigar brand in, in Australia. So I need to visit there. And I just think it's cool um, just visiting and seeing different cultures. And, and uh, I just love everything about travel. So you take my love for travel, cigars, and then you put those two together and I land in Cuba. And literally there is no place like it on earth. I say there's no place like it, you know, in the beyond earth because it's like going back in time in so many ways and things, the normal, uh, economics, normal physics, the, the laws of this earth do not seem to apply to Cuba in so many ways. And that's why I love the place. You know, it's was for the most part untouched by American hands. And I don't say that to, to upset my fellow Americans, but it's something about Americans. We go there and we, we have a very centric view of the world. Americans in general, I mean, I'm going to lay it out there and maybe it won't be so pretty for some people to accept it. But unfortunately, folks, it's true. We have such a centric view of the world. We feel the whole world revolves around the United States and a lot of reasons. You know, there's reasons why we do that. I'm not going to get into that. But <laughs> when you step outside of the U.S., you realize it's a very big world out there. And we're just another, you know, citizen of this planet. And when you get that feeling and you mix with people from all over the world, you understand that it's really one world, not one United States. I mean, obviously, we put our country first and all that, but it's a big world out there and people from all different walks of life and, and cultures. And that's what makes the world go round. And that's really what the United States is, a melting pot of people from all over the world that come here. Me being a 
Greek immigrant myself and everybody here being an immigrant. We all came from somewhere. And right. um, it's very just nice to us. see the rest of the world. Yeah, very, very few, few of us are indigenous to uh, North That's America, true. the United States. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm looking forward to getting into this with you. We're going to start with the history of Cuba. But before we do, I'd like to invite you, the listener, to go to OxfordCigarCompany.com and use coupon code simply stogies. Use that coupon code and you're going to get 15% off your entire purchase. Whatever's in your cart, doesn't matter what it is, 15% off when you use coupon code simply stogies only at oxfordcigarcompany.com. Hey everyone, I'm John. I'm Andrew. And I'm Kevin. And we are the Video, Video Game, Game Lounge, Lounge Podcast. Podcast. What are you guys doing? You're supposed to do it together, Kevin. <laughs> Title over 60. All right, yes, this is the Video Game Lounge Podcast. Podcast not here for notes and news, but to talk games and drink brews. Join us every other Monday. Where we talk about what you're drinking, what you're playing, and most importantly, each episode we discuss games of past, present, and the involvement it may or may not have influenced us. Oh, that was quick. That's what she said. Got him. All right, and we're back. Now we're going to talk about the history of Cuba. Now look. If 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 you guys are anything like like I was, I I enjoy history. I do. I think Nick, you enjoyed history too, right? As a kid, like yeah, absolutely, school. I love it. Yeah, yeah. But it's also it can get a bit dry. <laughs> but I think well, we're gonna try to avoid that. Well, James. we're gonna do our um, best. We're gonna do our best. You know, when we set on this and we talked about doing this as a project, the one segment that I thought was going to be the most difficult was going to be this one because, as much as I feel it's very important to understand the history of this country slash island. Um, I didn't want it to make it be a, you know, college class. I didn't want it to be dry, but yet, you know, it's, it's, it's a long history. I mean, you know, spans uh, over 500 years since, you know, uh, it's independence. So it's been a long time, yeah. not it's independence. I'm saying since it was established as a country. Yep. Um, so you know what, let's talk about it. Let's get into it. Um, I think, James, you as the moderator, if it starts getting a little bit dry, just have me move on because, you know, sometimes I tend to dwell. I like to try to give as much personal input when I can. Um, but all I did really, because I am a student of the history of Cuba and Cuba in general, I went down and I started marking down a timeline of the years to give me some kind of outline to try to stay on track. And let's see how it goes. Yeah, no, absolutely. If I start to if I start to fall asleep, the professor can see me. Uh, uh, professor Cyrus uh, will, right. will. I'm sure he will <laughs> start moving. Absolutely. Just if I start scream. falling asleep, then you tell me. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll be fine. But again, guys, this is I think to understand where we're at with Cuba modern day, you really have to look at history and you have to look at where the people have been where they've come from, how they've gotten to where they are. Uh, and cigars play a, a part in that, obviously. And so we're going to get to that. But this this whole series is really going to revolve around Cuba. So let's start with the history. So Cuba, obviously, I mean, it's been around for a while. Uh, yeah. Where did it where did it really start? Like, so obviously when the new world was found, Cuba was part of that. What What is what did it look well, like? Let's take let's take one step back from that point. Only because the most important reason that I became interested in Cuba and still is what drives me is, again, the cigars, the tobacco. Um, and that really started with the arrival of the first indigenous people of Cuba 
which actually predates, I think, to a thousand years BC. Uh, originally there were three indigenous people or, or, you know, Native Americans. They were the people of Guanatabe. Um, they were the Taino Indians and then they were the Siboney people. So those three tribes eventually got there. I know that the uh, Guantanamo people came from South Africa. The Tainos migrated probably from Mexico. But anyway, they all got to this island. They kind of lived among each other. And uh, they started to settle the region, um, growing different types of things. Uh, one thing I read was maize. I don't even know what maize is. M-A-I-Z-E. Don't it's, know what that is. but the, corn. Do you know? Corn. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, is that what it's called? It, well, it's kind of, oh. it, it's it's the the predecessor to corn. I don't think maize is exactly uh, corn, but it's okay. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the predecessor. That's as much as I know about food. Well, I do know about yucca, and they planted a lot of yucca plants. Mm-hmm. Cotton was big there, and of course, the magical plant tobacco. Now, this and, was and this, the, you're saying thousand BC is when when they first arrived there. So, now so the put, Tainos. No, no, I oh, want to put that. I, I want to put that in perspective for folks. A thousand right. BC. Like what was going on in 1000 BC? That was the Iron Age of India, uh, the Iron Age of kingdom, uh, kingdom's rule uh, in India. So there was that was going on. That's actually biblically. That was the time of David, if you're into that. Uh, so like we're, we're talking 1000 BC, that was a long time ago, folks. That That's was- when they first landed there. Yeah. You know, when they first inhabited the island. Now, we're let's fast forward to about 1200 A.D., which is the modern day of early, you know, uh, of early Cuba. And that's where they really started to settle it in earlier, early on, there were farmers, hunters, fishers, what people did in those years. But once we got into the, uh, 1000 AD, 1200, that's when the tobacco plant was really first known to be developed. So it wasn't 1000 BC where there's actually some sort of documentation. Uh, it was about 1200. So, about, so we're looking at, at what, uh, 800 years ago? Yeah. So, yeah. okay. It's it, been a while. Been a long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they say, and, and I'll talk more about it in the Cuban tobacco uh, segment, really how the, you know, in much more depth with the Taino Indians and the tribes and what they did with the tobacco. But the most important fact, and this is why we are all interested, at least I'm interested in Cuba, is because of that plant. Um, and the rest of the world really became interested in Cuba because of that plant. Now, we go to a very famous date, 1492. <laughs> I believe Everybody that, knows that year. That was the year uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it is. And if there's one date most everybody knows in history, it's 1492. Well, it happens to be that... Also in 1492, Christopher Columbus is the first European to visit Cuba. He lands there, he claims the land for Spain, and he actually named the land Isla Juana. But, of course, later it would be known as Cuba, which actually was derived from hearing the local Native Americans call it Cuabana, which is spelled C-O-A-B-A-N-A, which got shortened to Cuba. So that's... Really, the founding of Cuba was 1492. Um, in 1509, the coast of Cuba is fully mapped by another Spanish navigator. His name was Sebastian de Ocampo. And then, really, things started taking off in 1511. Diego Velasquez de Cellular 
established a settlement there. The first settlement was called Baracoa. Funny thing is Baracoa now is a suburb or a region of Havana. Now I know where that name comes from. <laughs> so um, that really was the first settlement, uh, Spanish settlement in Cuba. And that would, and then he, so that would be the start of the colonialization of, of Cuba. That first. Yes. The, yeah. the 15, early 1500s. Right. Um, he starts to uh, begin his conquest of Cuba for Spain, of course, but he really goes about killing the majority of the native uh, Taino population uh, between 70 and 100 years. They all they all were wiped out. Yeah, they were all wiped out. There were three different indigenous tribes, uh, not just the Tainos, right? There was like the. Right. Yeah. But, right. But everyone. The, the Sibone people and the uh, Guanatabe there you people. Go. And those people were all wiped out. But the Taino were the, I guess, the most famous, the ones we remember, because they're the ones that are credited with the tobacco. But I'm sure they all used it. Um, now, they were killed not only just from their very uh, hard rule. And, um, you know, they, they, they ruled it like a medieval settlement. The Spanish came in there, um, made slaves of the Taino. Um, but if the hard um, rule didn't kill them, a lot of the diseases did yeah. you know smallpox and all these things that came over uh, from Europe that these people had no uh, built-up immunities to, and so a lot of people were just getting wiped up, wiped out. Originally, back in those days, there was about six hundred thousand um, population. The population was about six hundred thousand, and uh, so they went pretty fast. Wow. You know? um, yeah, and a lot of them were killed by the Taino. But at the time, what Cuba really became to be settled by the Spanish through the uh, the industries of sugarcane and cattle, as, as well as tobacco. Cattle, I say that and I have to shake my head because that's one thing that's like very, very scarce. It's like a uh, endangered species uh, in Cuba, especially right now. Um, just a side note that there's a little bit of information that if you kill any type of cattle in Cuba, the crime is more severe than killing a human being. They do not allow the killing of cattle because there's hardly any left um, because of the big drought, you know, that uh, and the embargo is caused and the people's starvation through many periods of which we'll talk about. There is no cattle left and they're trying to build up the cattle and so they don't let them kill them. Wow. So, I'll talk a lot more about that when we talk about the people of Cuba. But it's funny how cattle was really the main thing that was uh, thriving back then in the early 1500s. So anyway, 1514 is a big year. That is the year that the city Havana is established. And in fact, just a few years ago, we had the 500-year anniversary for uh, Habanos with Cuba, and it became a big year of festivals in Cuba. It was a good year to be there. They had their equivalent of a carnival type thing and things out in the street. And it was a very festive year. Big sign, it says 500 year anniversary. So the big date to remember back in the 1500s is 1514. That's when the establishment of the city of Havana is done. So moving on, other important years in the 1500s, 1526 is when slaves are started to be imported from Africa. And they needed this workforce for the tobacco fields. And then eventually the sugar would become their most important crop. But uh, that's why there was a lot of uh, imports 
there from Africa, and the population was such that 20% uh, were Africans and 30% were the white uh, Europeans. So they brought in a lot of uh, slaves. Wow. So all these slaves uh, were there. You had 30, 20%, 50% of the whole uh, population was um, – 50% were white and then 20%. I got that, that. I have to look back at my notes, which I don't have in front of me. But there was a lot. There was a lot. Right. Uh, 1589, the Moro Castle is built. Uh, I mentioned the Moro Castle because if you ever go to Cuba, that's on one of my tours. And it's a beautiful uh, castle that's still there. And that's built to basically guard the entrance to the Havana Bay. Every night at 9 o'clock, what they used to do is run this long chain across and uh, to basically lock in and also to prevent from pirates coming into the bay. And they would just nine o'clock every night. And in fact, at 9 p.m. every day in Cuba, they have a ceremonial uh, firing of the cannon from the Moro Castle area. And you can hear it every uh, evening at 9 p.m. And that signifies, hey, it's like curfew time. Everybody go home. And um, they still do that to this day. And they actually have this little ritual that they do and it's nice to even see that if you're ever in Cuba. Wow. But the view the view from the Moro Castle is fantastic. You can see the whole bay and it's one of the most uh, best vistas in all of Cuba and lots of pictures are taken there so every year. During this time Nick, is, uh, are, is tobacco their main like form of, of, of commerce? It's is- yeah, it started with tobacco being the main, but as far as for the island, I think sugarcane uh, would become their most important crop. And that continued where Cuba is always known for tobacco, even for many, many years after, uh, in their, in their heyday, you know, the tobacco makes them famous and they're known for it, but it was really the sugarcane that uh, brought them most of their income. Right. Because until, until Florida got into, into the act and then, it went down, but anyway. Right. So we're talking 1514, Havana's founded. I, I, I just want our listeners to take a minute and think about that because when you when you start looking at cities here throughout the United States, none of them, or very few, have that pedigree. 1514. Like typically you're talking in the United States, you're talking like 1600s, like late 1600s, uh, you know, is when things really started to pick up for the United States. So this is 100 years, bef- like 150 years before that. And like Havana has been around and it's Cuba's importance. I don't think can be understated. I mean, the, the Spanish used it uh, as like a, a, a a port between the new world and, and Europe, like they would come down through Cuba and then uh, you know, to, to the rest of uh, North America and they would use that as a stop. And, and and so Cuba has been a very important part of North American history and culture since it was found. Right. You know, the oldest U.S. city, I think, is supposed to be um, St. Augustine in Florida. And I don't remember the date there, but I think it's 1600 something. Right. Um, the oldest city in Nicaragua, you know, I remember visiting. Uh, anyway, we go, we get off on uh, different points here. <laughs> different but, but anyway, Cuba, yes, very important. So important to the, the Spanish. They defended it. Uh, very, very, um, very, very well, um, until they lost it, uh, which brings us to 
the 1700s and 1762 when the British attack Havana and it's finally captured and taken away from the Spaniards by British forces. And, um, that happened after what they was, was after what was termed the seven years war, probably because it took seven years. <laughs> and, um, that was, it finally turned over to, to Britain and Britain loved it and they used it. Um, and they didn't want to give it up, but a year later they were forced to, they came to this big, uh, treaty with, um, with not only France and Spain, and it was known as the Treaty of Paris. And after seven years, they gave it back. Now they gave it back, but, uh, part of the deal was they got Florida, speaking of Florida. So the British actually owned Florida. Yeah. Um, that was part of the trade deal. So then we fast forward to 1791 and that started something else. And that was the start of the Haitian Revolution, very nearby island of Hispaniola. Uh, Hispaniola today we know as Haiti and Dominican Republic and uh, thousands and thousands of refugees fled there to Cuba. So that really started because of uh, they had a slave uprising and that really, really impacted Cuba a lot. Uh, we're talking about um, 300,000 French settlers that fled Haiti and a lot of them ended up in Cuba. Now, the French brought the sugarcane production expertise to Cuba. And that's why to this day, Cuba, well, maybe not to this day, but close to this day, it's literally still one of the largest producers of sugarcane in the world. And that all started because of the uh, the French influence through Haiti. Right. So then Spain opens up, you know, the Cuban port for international trade just about the year 1818. And it becomes, like you mentioned, James, one of the most epicenters of international trade in the, you know, the new hemisphere for sure that, you know, that was the place to be. And um, the U.S. took notice and they started really saying, hey, man, we really like uh, Cuba. This looks really nice. So believe it or not, the U.S. attempted to invade Cuba a few times and they lost. Of course they did. And they lost. That's that's kind of the problem, you know. They so then they go, okay, well, fine, we'll we'll try to buy it. So they offered Spain a hundred million dollars, and the offer was rejected. Then fast forward a few more years, and um, 1954, there was this whole secret plan to buy Cuba from Spain for 130 million dollars, but um, that failed. So they weren't having much success. But then a period of time that was known as the Ten Years' War, which started from 1868 to 1878. And that was a pretty cool war in the sense that, uh, <laughs> that was a cool America, <laughs> that, for me, I, I, you know, I was fascinated because I read so much about that war because I saw, do you remember? And if anybody's ever heard of the term, you know, Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders, um, you know, that just to me has this, perfect, you know, movie-centric type, you know, these guys, uh, the U.S. Cavalry at the time, and they went out and basically just kicked ass. That's yeah. what their job was. So they basically formed an army of about 125,000 volunteers, and uh, it was really romanticized by Teddy Roosevelt through not only his own writings, but they actually reenacted a lot of it for silent movies, and that's what made it super famous. And that's why I say it's, you know, no war is cool. Don't get me wrong. But U.S. fascination with Cuba started and they tried and they literally, 
and, and you know, this is when things really started going wrong with the U.S. and Cuba, in my opinion. They kind of took it over. Um, you know, there was a lot of investment during that time from the U.S. side. But during this turmoil, you know, the investors, they started to buy large uh, tracts of land at really low prices. And then, believe it or not, a lot of Cubans emigrated to the United States in that same 10-year period. And according to the U.S. State Department records, by the end of that 10-year war, the Americans, again, that's where they tried to purchase Cuba and they couldn't do it. So what happens? 1902, after the Spanish-American War, which was with the Rough Riders and everything else, the Americans officially got involved um, because they blew up this ship uh, called the U.S. Maine. Um, in fact, it's still the 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 reason of the of the um, the explosion is unknown. They don't know what happened. Hmm. I think. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, I think a lot of speculation is that the Cubans actually did it to get the Americans to join in on the war because they weren't doing so well up until it was taking 10 years and things weren't going great. And they wanted the U.S. to get involved. So whether or not the Cubans blew it up or, you know, something really or the Spaniards. Anyway, that's what triggered it. And they said, all right, enough's enough. Now we're forced to come in. And I think the U.S. really was just looking for a reason to jump in because they wanted to take over. And that's what they did. So they took over and... um they took control. They beat them pretty quickly. They actually they took and ceded Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines to the U.S. in another treaty of Paris. So they started becoming the protectorate of Cuba, and the military control, the American military control, enacted the Platt Amendment, which uh, then al- allowed the withdrawal of troops from Cuba. And, um, but part of that same agreement, it agrees that the U.S. had an ongoing right to intervene militarily and to protect the strategic and business interests there. So basically, we kind of controlled it. And then in 1902, we officially allowed them to be a, their own country. And right. that's when the uh, Republic of Cuba was formed. But another important thing happened uh, during that Platt Amendment, which is still here to this day. And that is about the Guantanamo Bay. Um, what happened there is we, we gave ourselves a perpetual lease that allows us to basically occupy Cuba. And we built a naval base there in 1902. And, um, the only way that we could be thrown off, according to this treaty, is that both parties would have to agree. And that's it. Now, we're supposed to pay rent in all these years. And I do know another tidbit. That um, ever since Fidel Castro took over, he refused to cash a check from the U.S. government. I don't know what the amount is, but um, we're supposed to pay rent, and which we, I'm sure, send a physical check to Cuba <laughs> every year, which the Cuban government then rips up because by them accepting it would be that they would uh, accept the fact, yeah. legitimize that we're there. But that's an important thing because um, Guantanamo Bay is still there. So 1902. The big year, the Cuban Republic was uh, established, and uh, that's when it was launched. Well, and I think so, it's—I think it's at this point it's probably important to just kind of take a minute and, and reflect on the Cuban people. So the indigenous uh, folks were wiped out almost entirely when the Spanish first arrived. So Cuba has always been 
since it was found by uh, uh, the old world, it has always been under someone else's rule, whether it was Spain, Britain, Spain, <laughs> the U.S. Like they've always they've always been under somebody's thumb and they've always been kind of a I don't want to say a pawn, but a pawn in, in the bigger machinations of, of larger, more wealthy countries. Absolutely. And, and I and I don't understand why is it because the people were more against being a part of the U.S.? You know, Puerto Rico gave in all these other countries and we took them over and we have other territories all over the world. But Cuba, in essence, was our territory. We were their military. We were their, uh, you know, we were we were we kind of even though officially we uh, we put in a president. The guy's name was Thomas Estrada Palma became their first president. Um, but basically, a lot of people think he was kind of a pawn of the U.S. government and that they established this government there under the Republic of Cuba, but it was really kind of ours. Yeah. And if you read, you know, the, the treaty, I mean, think about it. Where does it, where would you as a country allow the U.S. to intervene anytime they wanted to in any Cuban affairs? And we're taking this piece of land. So we, we basically won the war for him and that was kind of our agreement. Yeah. So as you can tell, it didn't sit well with the Cuban people. No. Uh, by 1906, a mere four years later, another rebellion has started, this time by a guy named Jose Miguel Gomez. Uh, Estrada resigned and this guy took over. So the U.S. said, no, 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 no. This is going to happen. So they go back, they retake control and the U.S. military reoccupies Cuba. And that was embarrassing um, to Cuba because this this period was known as the second intervention because literally they'd only been freed four years earlier by the U.S. and immediately they were getting taken over again. Um, so 1909, uh, Jose Miguel Gomez then became the president following the elections that were supervised by the, uh, by the U.S. Of course. But again... <laughs> But again, this was soon tarred by corruption. Lots of corruption from this point on, uh, maybe before, but it just seems like corruption is part of that country in so many ways. So 1909, that happens. Then in 1924, a gentleman by the name of Gerardo Machado. Now, he starts really becoming a very brutal ruler. And he's got some very vigorous measures that also helps bring them forward with mining and agriculture. Um, but it's a very, very brutal dictatorship that's established and the people don't like it so much. So, uh, 1925, the Socialist Party is officially established, which really formed the basis of the Communist Party. Move forward, 1933. Now, the military, American military squashes in that period of time and in, in a matter of eight years or so, three Cuban uprisings. Um, so they're constantly being battled over this time. The U.S. backs a military coup led by, now this name may be familiar to some people, by a certain Sergeant Fulgencio Batista. Mm. Now, he was then established as president Either that or some people say he was kind of the muscle behind other people that were presidents. But whatever you want to call it, Batista took control. Uh, Machado is overthrown and Batista starts his rule in 1933. 1934, the U.S. abandons its rights 
to intervene in the Cuban internal fears anymore because now they're kind of happy because Cuba's sugar quotas and tariffs start to favor back the Cubans. So we're getting stuff from them. So we kind of leave them alone in 1934. But new government reforms are instituted there. They're trying to get them, oh, listen, you know, get the people back on their side, which include the right to vote for women and minimum wage and stuff that is actually predates the times in the U.S. Um, about when, so they were pretty progressive in a lot of ways right. when there was, when it wasn't being corruptly, uh, you know, overturned, uh, which is, seemed to be all the time. 1940, Batista is elected president and he is supported by the Communist Party. And back then in the 40s, it was, you know, he wasn't a dictator. He was really the head of the Communist Party. There were multiple different parties that went on. And so he ruled starting in 1940. In 1941, Cuba gets involved. It stayed neutral towards World War II, but then something happened with a um, some ship. I forgot exactly. Um, but they end up declaring war on the Axis powers, and they get involved in World War II. By 1944, Batista, who has probably lined his pockets well, um, decides to retire. And he's actually succeeded by a civilian named Ramon Grau San Martin. So he rules. So from 1944 to 1952, it's him and a different regime. But then 1952, former President Batista, he says, you know what? I think I want back in. So he seizes power again and he uh, takes over the country once again. But this time with a very oppressive and corrupt regime, he basically names himself dictator and he just starts abandoning the constitution that has been in place forever. He halts all elections and, um, Believe it or not, this corrupt rule actually favors U.S. interests and, of course, also the Cuban aristocrats that live there, while the regular middle class and the poor people are left to be destitute. So the U.S. kind of likes what's going on. Oh, absolutely. They loved it so much that it was a it was a destination spot for a lot of Americans during this time. It was this is like there were if, if I'm not mistaken, there were casinos and resorts and the affluent. Uh, in American society at the time, this is where they would vacation. They would vacation. Yeah, I mean, basically, it started in the twenties. Yeah. You know? But really, the fifties. I mean, the forties and fifties. The American economic dominance was very prevalent. Americans in the Prohibition era, they just swarmed to casinos and the lavish hotels that were in Havana. Um, U.S. corporations thrived there during the Batista years, and of course, another group of people known as organized crime figures. <laughs> they found it a very, very safe and welcoming playground. Yes. And they grew their illegal businesses and they became a big part of the Cuban government with Batista being very, very um, wealthy. And I mean, if there's a whole nother chapter that if anybody is interested in, you know, we could have a whole episode about, you know, the, uh, the American gangster or the Italian mob really that uh, went there and, you have people like Meyer Lansky that I think was officially made like uh, Secretary of State. Or, I mean, he was like a oh, Secretary of Treasury. I don't know. He had a big title with the government, but I knew he gave an envelope every month uh, to Batista, a very thick envelope. He ran the casinos <laughs> there. He ran it for the, the, the mob, and it became the playground for America. I, and I listen, I believe 100% that if we didn't have Fidel Castro and the 
Cuban revolution that we're going to talk about in just a second. If that didn't happen, I don't believe there ever would have been a Las Vegas and we'd be doing the cigar, uh, IPCPR, <laughs> you know, yep. things there every year. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it was the place to be. If you think about it, it's a beautiful place. Havana right on the water. Um, it's just a great venue to have a casino. I mean, Vegas, it's nice, but, but I wonder it's in the middle of a desert. I, I, I wonder, Nick, if, if the, hmm. the revolution didn't happen, if Castro, which we're going to talk about here in just a second, never, never came to power. Uh, if something had happened and, and, uh, you know, we, we still had this relationship, uh, with Cuba. What is, what does that look like for the cigar industry? Because, uh, you know, we're talking about how there was so much money flowing to Cuba through the U S and, and through the, the, uh, uh, mob, uh, organized crime. Uh, and, and so all this money's flowing to Cuba and everything is very opulent and lavish, like you said. So you've got, I mean, there's nothing that screams luxury more than literally lighting money on fire, which is what we do with, with this uh, hobby that we all enjoy and love. We buy our cigars and we light them on fire. So there's nothing more luxurious than that. What does, what would it look like then if there is no Habanos SA? Like I feel like Cuban cigars as we know them today. And as we have known them for the past 60, 70, even a hundred years, We'd, it would be a completely different ball game, especially when you take into consideration corporate America and what that looks like, especially with some of the larger tobacco players, Altadas General, where, you know, they would probably go down and have a large influence. And I think, that, you know, Altadas already does. Or General, Which one owns part of uh, Habana? Well, it, it used to be Altadas, which was owned by Imperial, but that just happened uh to, they, they, they sold off Altitus. Altitus now is owned wholly by a Spanish, um, shell corporation, which we really don't know who the owners are. I'm not Spanish. I'm sorry. Uh, Chinese. Yeah. So, and, and Altitus is 50% of Habanos, SA. Yeah. So, so, so they still, 50% like, is Cuba, 50 is Altitus. Right. So, I mean, e even now it's like part of it's still controlled by, a big tobacco. So, I mean, when you, when you really start to think about it, what, what does that look like? I, I don't, I don't know if we would have some of the Cuban brands that we have today and if we would have this, uh, you know, last 70 years. Last, I, I feel like the history no, 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 would have no, completely no. changed for computer, uh, Cuban cigars. Uh, not really. You don't think it so? It would have changed. No, it would have uh, it would have changed, but not in the way you think, because they were very, very, very well established. Uh, the brands, all the, the, the most popular Cuban brands were there for many, many years when, uh, Castro nationalized them. Um, and what we would have, the, the difference would have been is we wouldn't have Nicaragua and all these other countries. Well, you know what? I think eventually we would, you know, Cuba would just never be able to supply the tobacco necessary to, to serve the whole world. Right. Mainly the U.S., which is the largest you know, consumer in the world. Uh, and they represent 70% of the world's tobacco consumption. So it would have changed. They would have just, you know, Cuba would have been still the main um, forefront of the, of the tobacco industry. But you have to understand, we're going to talk about this in a whole nother segment when we talk about Cuban cigars. But even though Havana was the center, literally Tampa became the yes, center. Tampa, the yeah, absolutely. Pr production really shifted to not only Tampa, but to um, 
to Spain. So most of the Cuban cigars that were made during that time were not even actually rolled in Cuba, but the tobacco came from there. And that's pretty much where all the tobacco came. Would things have changed? Yes, but it would have been slower process and it would have been totally different. You know, there was a very um, important figure in the tobacco world by the name of Zeno Davidoff. And he was down there. He was making Davidoff cigars. You know, he had, uh, you know, he came chummy with, with Castro. And he was very smart because he was the first one that was able to take his brand, the first and only one, that was able to take his brand away. He kind of had the foresight to say, you know what, first of all, I see the way things are going over here. Um, we're going to have shortages of tobacco. I'm not getting the stuff that I want to do. So he started exploring the very, very close uh, country of the Dominican Republic. Yeah. And he started making Dominican cigars. Whether he had a crystal ball or he saw the writing on the wall, he got out and he got out fast before and the only one to get out. And he started establishing the Dominican Republic as another country that made, that grew tobacco. And he started making statements that he believed Dominican tobacco was better than Cuban's tobacco while he still continued to make Cuban tobacco. <laughs> Uh, well, it's that's Cuban just, cigars that's just for many years. Bets. That's all that is. That's oh, just, that's all it was. Yeah. 100%. Uh, he, he continued to make, Davidoff continued to make Cuban cigars well through the 90s. Yeah. Um, uh, but yet they established in the Dominican Republic back in the, uh, I think the actual year might have been still in the 50s, the late 50s, wow. early 60s. So, um, would things be totally different? Yes. If, if Fidel Castro hadn't nationalized and everything. But not as much as you think. All not right. as much as you think. I think the quality of Cuban cigars, the innovation would have been better. Um, the growth would have been better. But, you know, the, the country as far as just the soil, you know, is there. And, um, uh, and that's a fair point. I mean, the, so the soil is not going to change. And that's, I mean, that, that's what makes this, their cigars stand out from everyone else is the, is there so as long as well as a whole plethora of other things that we'll get into uh, in, in another episode. But here's I, I, before we move on to the because this is like the big thing that everybody knows, the Fidel Castro uh, revolution and, uh, you know, communism taking hold in Cuba from from the 50s until today. Um, but be before we get to that, I really want to hit home that, <laughs> again, there's a couple of things that really stand out about the history of the Cuban people. Number one, I think they're proud people. I, I honestly, Absolutely. I think they're very proud of their heritage, uh, both, you know, uh, Spanish uh, and, um, you know, I'm sure there's some still some in, in indigenous uh, lines there, um, but they're very proud people. But they're also they have been subjected to uh, political maneuverings of other countries that have really impacted them in very negative ways. They have been uh, subjected to political maneuverings of their own countrymen that have impacted them in negative ways. And they have been subjected to violence and corruption almost since its inception. Absolutely. They don't, absolutely. They don't know anything other than violence and corruption as a, as a people. Cause that's what they've always been subjected to. And it, like literally when going through this history, Nick, there's not, typically more than a hundred years or so where there is something violent that happens in country. Yeah. There's a lot of things that happened in that country. That's for sure. And that's where we're going to have to leave this episode. Join us next time where myself, 
and Nick Sirius, owner of LH Cigars and Cuban expert, continue our discussion on the history of Cuba, talking about Castro, the revolution, how that impacted the cigar industry, and a look at modern-day Cuba. Until then, stay smoky, friends. Thank you for listening to Simply Stogies. Visit simplystogies.com for the latest articles and reviews. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for the latest in video content. And please rate and review Simply Stogies on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. You can follow James on his cigar journey on Instagram at Simply Stogies Podcast, all one word, and on Twitter at the Twitter handle at Simply Stogies. If you have a question or suggestion for James or would like to be on the show, please send an email to info at simplystogies.com. The views and opinions expressed by James and his guests are their own and do not reflect those of Creative Brain Candy or their affiliates. <laughs>